Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. The Waco History Podcast is sponsored by Brotherwell Brewing on Historic Bridge Street in Waco. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio All right, welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. I've got a great guest with me today, uh, Dr. John Dennis Anderson. Uh, he is a performance studies scholar and associate professor emeritus of communication studies from Emerson College. Uh, he performs nationally his one-person shows on authors such as Henry James, William Faulkner, Washington Irving, Ernest Hem- Hemingway, Robert Frost, and others. There's a lot of things that I could talk to him about with regard to performance and performance studies. But here we're delving back uh, <laughs> into Dr. Anderson's past to explore some work he did many years ago on Waco legend Madison Cooper. And so he did interviews, he did research, uh, he's written, uh, scripted a couple of plays on Madison Cooper. And so we're here to learn a little bit more. If you did not hear the episode on Saronia uh, that Jim Sorrell did for us, uh, that's going to carry a lot of the weight on talking about Saronia. But Madison Cooper had a very rich and interesting life. And so and so Dr. Anderson is going to help us with that. So thank you for, for coming in today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to get just a little bit of a kind of a background of how you came to this work. Uh, I mean, this is many years ago as a, as a, as you get your, your doctorate at UT, but you got two degrees from Baylor as well. And so I think it's during that time at Baylor that this introduction comes to you. Exactly. Yeah. I am from Waco, was born here and grew up here, and uh, I went off to Texas Tech for a year and a half before I transferred to Baylor, and I was primarily a debater um, on the Baylor debate team until my senior year as an undergrad, and under the influence of a wonderful professor named Charles McGeever, um, I started focusing on oral interpretation, and In my senior year as an undergraduate, I was in a production that was directed by Danny Volick about William Cooper Brand Mm -hmm. and got really interested in Waco history. And um, incidentally, that production about Brand included in the cast Kirk Watson, who's now Mm -hmm. (laughs) the mayor of of Austin. So um, I I decided to continue with a master's immediately after my, uh, my undergrad degree. And I had to come up with a a project. Initially, I intended it to be a thesis project, but it became um, just um, an MA project because I ended up deciding I was going to go right into my PhD at UT. So I just did a couple of extra courses and didn't do the actual thesis. But I did do the production, uh, an adaptation of Saronia, Texas. So learning about Bran, I started learning more about Waco history, and I'd vaguely known about the novel Saronia, Texas. Mm-hmm. 
I had also worked in the Waco Public Library um, starting in junior high as a volunteer. And um, uh, for a year and a half, I was a, a part-time reference librarian at, um, in the evenings. And I remember always being able to look from the reference desk out the window and see <laughs> the cupola of the Cooper Mansion. Uh-huh. And um, so when I finally actually looked at the novel, I was just blown away. It was amazing to me. And so I, you know, 1,731 pages in two volumes, it's a daunting prospect to adapt it. But um, I, I was lucky to find a short story called The Catch of Saronia mm. that Cooper published in 1939, I think. Uh, he started working on the novel. It took him 11 years to write it. And um, it was published in 1952. So this was very early in his work on the story of Saronia. Uh, So The Catch of Saronia was a short story that pretty much tracked the story of Lance Thaxton Mm -hmm. and Tam Lipscomb's connection to him. And so that enabled me to go back to the novel and just track those episodes that made a short story. So it's easier to adapt a short story into Mm -hmm. a play than than a novel. And then I added two other subplots uh, to sort of round it out. So I, um, I was working on adapting it, and um, I was taking courses in the history department as a minor in my master's. I took a wonderful uh, oral history seminar with Dr. Tom Charlton, and for that, we uh, did research. We did an oral history interview as our project, and I had been working in the Texas collection with the Madison Cooper Papers, mm-hmm. Um, Kent Keith was the archivist. He was very helpful at helping me navigate those papers. And I, th- the letters that he kept were really interesting, and I used those a lot for the production. And um, sorry if I'm making noise here, adjusting my microphone, my headphones. Um, I found this notebook that Cooper had kept that he devoted a page to each of the major characters. There are mm-hmm. 80 well, all the characters, 83 major characters in the novel. And so each page uh, was about one character, and he would tell, he, he identified the people he based the characters on. And they were usually composites. Mm-hmm. So uh, one character in the novel would be a composite of as many as six real people. Mm-hmm. And um, he would list two columns, who they looked like, and in the other column, who they acted like at, as a child, as a, um, an adolescent, and as an adult for the characters that you know, are children at the beginning of the novel. It, it covers the years 1900 to 1921, and the main character is named Tam Lipscomb. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so I wrote down all these names, and then I started asking around you know, who these people were, and uh, one of the characters in the novel is Trina Starrow Hayden, who is described as very um, plain and colorless, but very sweet. And uh, she marries the sort of scapegrace of the aristocratic families, Jed Hayden. And, um, and I thought, well, if there's any character in this novel, which has a lot of scandal in it, 
uh, who wouldn't mind being identified with a character. It would be this very sweet woman. Um, and so under that page for Trina Starro Hayden, he had listed that she acts like uh, Flory Neal Cooper H. And the Cooper caught my attention because I thought, mm -hmm. oh, maybe this is a relative. And in the correspondence, he, he, he kept all of his fan mail, which is really fun to read. <laughs> and, I bet, yeah. And somebody said, um, are you related to Flory Neal Cooper Hudson? So I, now I knew the last name. And he said, no. Um, but uh, I just went to the phone book. And I still remember the night that I was in my office, my graduate student office at Castellaw Communications Center, um, and I called this phone number. She lived at 4200 Grimm, and uh, when she answered the phone, it was like a character stepping out of the book. I got chills, <laughs> and she had this very thick southern accent uh, that was just gorgeous to listen to, and she had known Cooper slightly. They went to the same Episcopal church, but uh, she'd never read the novel. She had been told that it was a dirty book and that it was uh, not respectable to read. <laughs> um, and so I told her, well, you know, you're identified in his notes as uh, the basis for a character. And her, you know, she got really interested then. And so I asked if I could interview her as my oral history project. So uh, on two occasions, I interviewed her in April and May of um, 1985, I'm sorry, 1978. And I recorded those on those old reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders. And, um, and it was a fascinating experience. Um, and basically, I just, first I did the standard oral history interview, you know, who are your parents, mm -hmm. um, what's your education, et cetera. And... Um, and then I spent most of, it, it ended up being about four hours of interviews um, asking her about, you know, character after character <laughs> and specific situation in the novel. And, um, and it would trigger memories for her of um, schools she attended, childhood friends, men she dated, and um, parties she would have attended um, and what the decorations were like, what the refreshments were like, what the dances they danced were. So um, she had a really good memory. She yeah. did. She oh. did. It was really amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, she would occasionally blank on something, but uh, and and she would free associate. You know, something would remind her of something, and mm -hmm. um, so that and so I did that interview in 1978 and. Got an A in my oral history Fantastic. seminar. Fantastic. <laughs> That's the most important thing here. Yeah. <laughs> and then I put it aside. Um, I suspect that the reason I still had the tape as opposed to turning it into Dr. Charlton was that I was planning at that time to finish a thesis. Mm. And so he probably let me keep it because I was going to be working for a few more months on it. Um, and then for whatever reason, you know, well, I know I decided to go right into UT that next fall. And so I took an extra course that summer and wrote up a project paper instead of a thesis. Mm. And so it, it got left in my hands and I've carried it around all these years <laughs> thinking I've got to do something with this. In fact, I had intended to um, 
give it to the oral history collection at some point. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to listen to it. And finally, this summer, I had it uh, digitized, sent it off to a place uh, near Boston and um, and l- started listening to it. And <laughs> it was amazing. There are a lot of things I'd forgotten, obviously, because that was f- almost 40 years ago now. Yeah. Um, but uh, so in the last couple of weeks, I've listened to more of it and... I appreciate even more um, how many of the people that were we talked about are gone now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just in developing my work on Madison Cooper, uh, Dr. Charles McGeever has passed away. Kent Keith has passed away. Uh, Jerome Cartwright, who was the director of the Cooper Foundation, who was very helpful. Mm. Um, uh, he even let me take some of the furniture out of the house and use it for the set. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the production was done in um, the, at the Waco Civic Theater rather than at a theater in, at Baylor because I had grown up being in plays at the um, Waco Civic Theater, and I wanted to do it in that particular space. Mm-hmm. Um, and Henry Snyder, who was the director of the theater, uh, let me you know, do this... I adapted and directed and even had to play one role um, as a kind of understudy for somebody who um, wasn't able to do one of the three weekends of the show. And, um, and of course, um, Mrs. Hudson is, is gone. Um, so it's kind of a time capsule mm-hmm. now to have this interview and to look back on this project um, and I, as I said, I went right into my PhD in Austin as soon as the production was over, and uh, or a few months after that. And I, at first, I sort of uh, pitched the idea of writing a PhD dissertation on Saronia, Texas, and my um, graduate advisor uh, at UT said no. And I ended up uh, writing about Faulkner and. Um, Virginia Woolf and a couple of other writers instead. But it was always in the back of my mind to come back to this. And in 1985, seven years after the first production, I was asked to revive the production by the Cooper Foundation as a fundraiser to raise money to renovate the Cooper Cooper Mansion. And so they let me do it again. And um, I had to get permission from the Cooper Foundation and from Houghton Mifflin, who was the Boston publisher who published the novel. Mm -hmm. And um, so um, I did it again in 1985. And it was a more elaborate production that time. Where did Uh, you stage that production? Also at the Waco Civic Theater. Okay. And uh, Baylor Theater uh, contributed costumes. the style of the play uh, was chamber theater. So it was um, a staging of a narrative work with the narrative still intact. Mm. So I used Madison Cooper as the primary narrator in both productions. And uh, in the second production, I distributed the narration among the characters. Um, I had seen uh, Nicholas Nickleby on Broadway, mm-hmm. uh, this huge, expansive adaptation of a Dickens novel that used an ensemble narration. And so um, I think that 1985 production was much better as a result. Um, and 
I did stick very closely to the novel, um, adapting the novel with the narration intact. I did add a few monologues for Madison Cooper, one in each act, and they were compiled from interviews and letters that were in the um, Texas collection at Baylor. And then over the years, every time I thought about going back to that play, I, I thought, well, the, the deciding factor was the representation of race in the novel mm -hmm. and in my play as a result is something I'm uncomfortable with now in a way I was kind of naive about, clueless about in 1978 and 1985. Uh, the N-word is used a lot in the novel, and I had it in my play as well. So I finally decided that I don't feel comfortable putting that script on stage again mm -hmm. uh, without changing it drastically. But I was still interested in Cooper himself, and so I... Um, started working on a one-man play about Cooper about the time I retired from teaching at Emerson in 2015, 2016. Um, I had been doing these uh, what are called Chautauqua performances mm -hmm. um, starting in 93, 94, as writers that included, as you mentioned in the introduction, Henry James and William Faulkner. And so when I first started the solo play about Madison Cooper, it, it was a little like a Chautauqua, which mm -hmm. is um, an interactive humanities program where scholars impersonate historical figures, giving a uh, monologue in character and in costume for about 30 minutes to 45 minutes, and then taking questions from the audience in character mm -hmm. and then out of character as a scholar. And so they're kind of like um, biographical lectures or uh, as if a historical author were giving a, a public reading and a lecture. And, um, and over time, as I would show it to people, and I did several staged readings of it up in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, where I live now, and people would give me feedback that um, they'd like to see something more dramatic and less lecture-like mm -hmm. and less filled with details about Cooper's life in the novel. And so it's evolved, and now it has four characters in it in the latest iteration, and I'm continuing to, to work on it. Uh, it was inspiring to attend the dedication of the historical marker for the Jesse Washington lynching uh, last Sunday because a major episode in the novel is a lynching very similar to the Jesse Washington lynching, which happened in 1916. And um, I include an account of that in the novel and, and talk about its relationship to the historical event. Um, <coughs> and so um, I was... Uh, very moved to mm -hmm. see the dedication of that memorial. Mm -hmm. um, so there's still some difficult material about race in the play, even the Madison Cooper play, as mm -hmm. opposed to the adaptation of the novel. Um, and <laughs> in the latest iteration of the play, I had actually included a character who was lobbying to get a historical marker placed. And I wrote it before I knew that 
the language had actually been drafted. I think the last public reading of this was done in July, not long after I learned that they'd already drafted the language for the historical marker, and I kept waiting for it to actually be installed. Yeah, we had we had language for it in 2016, so that's how long the effort has gone on. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's it's been an, a fascinating project, uh, and I still am obsessed with... <laughs> <laughs> so we, the... Uh, we that has not been staged locally that iteration of no okay um i'd love to have a chance to do it (laughs) yeah well that gives me an idea we'll we'll talk about that later so i mean i'm interested john you know you did historical research you talked to contemporaries you did creative works and then you tried to embody Madison Cooper over time. So if you could kind of introduce him to us, uh, you don't, you don't have to do this, uh, you know, first person, but yeah, <laughs> if you could introduce us a little bit to, you know, as you've come to know him, who was he and, and what, what did you find interesting? Why did the, why did his kind of story stick with you? You think? Well, growing up in Waco, it was a real revelation to me to learn of somebody who had written a best-selling novel in 1952 that was the longest novel ever published at the time. And it was inspiring to uh, see that somebody with a background like mine mm-hmm. uh, could achieve something of that of that magnitude. Um, even though, oddly, it felt like it had been forgotten. And so that became a kind of mission of mine, was to uh, resurrect this forgotten novel. And um, Cooper himself was born in 1894. Um, He uh, was from a fairly privileged family, but not an old um, established family. His father uh, made his fortune with the Cooper Grocery Company. And one of the major themes of the novel is the conflict between old uh, original families, they call them the Hill families in Saronia, Texas, which is very similar to Waco, mm-hmm. um, although he denied that it was Waco, but I think that might have been to avoid liability. Yeah. Um, As we said before, he didn't really know any other place. <laughs> yeah, so there he, you uh, go. Uh, yeah. um, so he, um, he grew up in Waco um, from um, a f- with a family that was self-made as opposed Mm to um, inherited wealth. And even the old Hill families had fallen on bad times, and they were not as wealthy as they had been, but they still believed themselves as influential as they ever had been. And so that's one of the major conflicts. In fact, one of the working titles for the novel was The Hackberry and the Magnolia, with the Hackberry representing the sort of more middle-class um, background of the main character, Tam Lipscomb, and the Magnolia representing the old Southern aristocrats of the Hill families. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think he is portraying some of his own experience growing up with money in a society that still privileged old families, uh, multi-generational families of influence. And then the racial themes in the novel are very uh, prominent. Um, 
I highly recommend Jim Sorrell's uh, discussion of this mm -hmm. uh, in the previous podcast, which I only discovered a few weeks ago, I, even though it was made back in November, I think. Mm -hmm. um, he, um, Coppola was something of a sociologist, I think, as mm -hmm. well as a novelist. And um, I understand he'd written some kind of work of sociology that he threw away, abandoned. I'd uh, be curious to know uh, what that was about. Oh, another person who was so helpful in this process was Marion Travis, who wrote a biography of Cooper published mm -hmm. by Word Books. And uh, I contacted her in my during my research, and she gave me an annotated copy of her book where she would write uh, all the things that she wasn't able to include in the book. Um, and... Um, she also, you know, alerted me to people. Well, the book talks about people um, that, um, well, theories about uh, who the characters are based on. Mm -hmm. When the novel was published in 1952, it was kind of a scandal mm -hmm. because uh, there's a lot of sexuality in the book. There's a lot of um, uh, miscegenation and um, murders and suicides and, um, you know, the famous reservation in Waco, mm -hmm. the, uh, the red light district figures in the novel. Um, Peyton Place hadn't been written yet, but it was sort of Waco's Peyton Place. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, like Mrs. Hudson said, it was considered a dirty book, and uh, she wouldn't have been caught reading it, you know, at the time, although she devoured it once I told her <laughs> she was <laughs> the basis for a character. Um and um, so the novel is very rich. It's um, the style is a little awkward, um, kind of like Dreiser. Um, as I have lived with the novel over these years, I've come to the conclusion that um, he might have been influenced by William Faulkner, mm. um, particularly the novels Light in August and Absalom, Absalom, because one of the major characters of the novel, like Joe Christmas in Light in August, is a man who is both black and white. He's sort of uh, caught between the worlds of black and white populations and feels a lot of conflict as mm. a result, and then ultimately gets lynched. Um, uh, although the character, it's his brother who gets lynched in Serrano, Texas. Um, and then Absalom Absalom is about... Um, uh, interracial sexual relationships and even incest. Um, and doing all the work I did on Faulkner for Chautauqua performance, um, I was able to then go back and look again at Saronia and appreciate um, some of the influences that I think Cooper was operating on, uh, operating with. And one of the, the real sort of... Um, keys to the whole thing for me was a letter that I found in the archives at the Texas collection that Cooper had written to Malcolm Cowley, who was a major literary critic of the 40s and 50s. Um, Cowley had been responsible basically for resurrecting Faulkner's career when mm. Faulkner had gone out of print basically and uh, was struggling. He had to go to Hollywood to uh, write movies in order to uh, write screenplays in order to pay the bills. His books were out of print. And Cowley, who also 
was very interested in Hemingway and other writers of the lost generation, published the portable Faulkner, which is an anthology of Faulkner's work that sort of put Faulkner back on the map. And he won the, the Nobel a few years after that. And so I can't help but think that Cooper thought that Cowley might be able to do the same thing for him. Mm. And he wrote this letter that I found very poignant. It's a page and a half single space. It's a fairly long letter. And he kept the carbon of it, and that's why we have it in the Texas collection. And uh, he's basically saying, you know, when the novel came out, the publishers were taking a big risk. They were spending a lot of money. He was a, an unknown novelist, first novel. It was incredibly long, and um, so he felt obliged to do as much publicity for mm. it as he could. And it was announced in April, I think, of 1952 that the novel was going to be published. And media from everywhere descended on Waco. And he was in Life magazine and Vogue magazine, and photographers came to Waco. Um, and then the novel didn't actually get published until November. So from April to November, all of this excitement has kind of started to die down. Mm -hmm. And then when it was published, it was widely reviewed. But, um, and it was, I think, respectably reviewed. It was reviewed by Granville Hicks, another major critic, mm -hmm. on the front page of the New York Times Book Review, a full-page review that continued elsewhere in the issue. And... Um, and then it sort of, it was 11 weeks on the bestseller list, and then it kind of dropped out of sight. Mm. Uh, interestingly, in the Cooper papers at the Texas Collection, you can see the efforts he was making to be considered for the Pulitzer Prize. He wrote letters to everybody on the Pulitzer Committee with a packet of reviews. It <laughs> <laughs> um, was sort of campaigning. Uh, um but the Pulitzer went that year to Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea. Yeah. And it was the same year that Edna Ferber's Giant was published and the same year that John Steinbeck's East of Eden was published. So he had a lot of stiff competition. Um, so he, was, he really wanted to get the novel taken seriously as more than just a publicity stunt, more than just, you know, this Texas-sized longest novel ever published. And he wrote this letter to Cowley because Cowley had, in a, a volume of literary criticism, had mentioned Saronia kind of in passing as an example of post-war naturalism, along with William Styron and Carson McCullers. And um, so inspired by that, he wrote, uh, Cooper wrote Malcolm Cowley saying, thank you for, you know, what you've said about the book and, you know, can you help me? get it looked at again. Mm. This was in 54, Okay, two years later. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's just the letter he sent to Cowley in the Texas collection. Well, I, I discovered that there are Malcolm Cowley papers in Chicago at a university collection. And so I found the online catalog of all those papers, and there's a folder with Madison Cooper's name on it, meaning that there's a correspondence between them. So I called the library, the Peabody Library, and asked them, could you look in that folder and tell me if there's more than this one letter? And they did. And 
there's only the one letter that Cooper wrote Callie. Callie no response. Callie yeah. never responded. Mm-hmm. And so I suspect, well, Cooper did go on to write another novel, uh, The Haunted Hacienda. Yeah, right. I wanted to ask you about that because it was a trilogy, right? He was planning a trilogy. He was. Yeah. And it's set in West Texas, mm-hmm. not in, you know, sort of Central Texas cotton country. And I don't think he knew West Texas mm-hmm. as well. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't really care much for The Haunted Hacienda, I'm sorry to say. And he, he died in September of 1956 before he could complete this trilogy. And so he left instructions that all of his personal papers, including his uh, drafts of the rest of the trilogy, be destroyed. And his assistant was R.B. Hoover, who later became the first director of the Cooper Foundation. And Cooper uh, took several station wagon loads of papers to the incinerator uh, uh, hoover took. hoover yeah hoover took yeah mm-hmm. so we will never know how the rest of the trilogy was supposed to turn out i guess he had learned that um the length of seronia texas was kind of a problem f- for getting people to finish it uh, mm-hmm. and so he decided to break up the trilogy that would have started with haunted hacienda Interestingly, he wanted a movie made of mm-hmm. uh, Saronia, Texas. And in the uh, Cooper papers at the Texas collection, there's an outline that he made, about two long pages, legal-sized pages, of six separate feature films that he would let the novel be broken into. And uh, he even had ideas about casting, uh, who he wanted to play the characters. <laughs> he wanted Mildred Natwick to play uh, Millie Thaxton. Um, but, and he did get some offers, but he didn't think they were willing to pay enough. And so he held out and then interest died out. You know, if he had played his cards right, it could have been bigger than giant, you yeah. know, um, yeah. or Raintree County, which was another long regional novel about Indiana that, uh, Houghton Mifflin had published as well. Um, <clears throat> so... Was there more to your question? Well, that was really what I, you know, trying to get a sense of also kind of Cooper, the man, just, Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was, as you said, a bit of a sociologist, and I hear him described as, you know, reclusive, maybe Mm -hmm. increasingly reclusive in his life, or really an observer of people, and maybe just other ways in which you kind of learned who he was as an individual. Yeah. Uh, well, everybody s- talks about his eccentricities. Mm-hmm. He was very well-to-do, mm-hmm. but he lived very modestly. He wore old clothes. Um, there's a funny story. Um, his nephew's secretary was a woman named Mildred Rast, or Pud Rast. Uh, Pud was her uh, nickname. And my father, who was an accountant in Waco, knew Pud Rast, and he he said, would you like for me to ask Pud Rast if she'll, you know, let you interview her? So I did have a phone conversation with her. And she tells this story of, or told this story of um, Cooper coming to her office and she would throw away used carbons and he would dig them out of the trash rather than pay for a fresh carbon paper. And so that Malcolm Cowley letter is on carbon in the Texas collection. He kept 
you know, carbon copies of everything that he, and he had an extensive correspondence. Um, um, so he was a penny pincher, mm -hmm. notorious for wearing old clothes. And uh, Pudras said, she wrote him a note because she was embarrassed and said, uh, you have a hole in your pants. And, uh, and he, uh, as he was leaving the uh, office, the, it's a bank, um, he leaned over and whispered to her, if you're ever, if you ever have a hole in your pants, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> so he had a sense of humor. Uh -huh. um, he, he owned a movie theater in Waco. Um, one of the things I did in my research recently is I learned that there were uh, photographs at the Library of Congress uh, from the photographer who came to Waco to take all these pictures. They were, some of them were published in Vogue, I think, but there were contact sheets of you know, dozens of other shots. Um, and I, I was able to order the contact sheets, uh, and there's some pictures of him at the box office of his theater. I oh, interesting. I'm trying to remember if it was the Waco Theater. I'm not sure. Hmm. Um, so he was very interested in theater and film, mm -hmm. and um, I, I don't know that recluse is the right word. Um, he um, he liked to walk everywhere rather than um, you know, take the streetcar. <laughs> this is one of the things that um, Florian Cooper Hudson thought was unusual about him. Um, it's funny, when I was interviewing her, I asked her towards the end of this four hours of interview what she thought of Cooper, you know, knowing him casually from church. Mm -hmm. And um, she said, well, I, I really don't want to say. And I, you know, pressed a little more. And, and she said, well, turn that machine off. <laughs> so I turned off the tape recorder and... And then, you know, it comes back on and, and we're sort of laughing. And, um, and she's talking about how he was kind of, um, she doesn't use the word rude, but um, he was very individualistic. And, I see. Um, um, I mean, she's, she's struggling. She's saying it's, he's hard to describe, um, but she didn't like him very much is, you know, the implication. He was not a likable person. He was a kind of abrasive, I gather, and um, conceited. Um, in his letters, there's a line that I use in the play about, um, um, Dear God of Seronia, the letter was addressed from um, a woman who had known him slightly, um, saying, well, now you have reason to be conceited. <laughs> and he said, well, I thought I'd always had reason. Um, and um, he, uh, he got into a, a legal battle with his, uh, the Cooper Grocery Company's um, co-partner, uh, the Milams, that um, resulted in the sort of dissolution, uh, well, not the dissolution, but uh, Cooper being removed from the company. And uh, there was some bitterness about that. Um, he didn't get along with his sister, Lucille um, Cooper Lacey. Mm -hmm. And um, she actually lived right behind the Cooper house. Um, and one of her sons, Lawrence Lacey, in the oral history interview that um, I found in the online uh, Oral History Institute collection, 
he talks about um, there were times when some of his younger brothers and sisters were born and they would farm him out to the grandparents and Madison, Uncle Madison. And so he lived in the house uh, that's now the Cooper Foundation, which is an amazing house. Mm-hmm. I got to use uh, for my production, I got to take things out of the office and use them to dress the stage. Oh, wow. The center of the set was a recreation of his office. And mm-hmm. It's not the open-air cupola that some people think that he wrote the novel in. It's the attic room right below that. Okay. Um, so, um, now I've lost my train of thought. Um, you were talking about uh, Lawrence Lacey oh, Lawrence living in the house. Yeah, Living in the house and talking about, um, uh, you know, Cooper often wouldn't come home for dinner. Um, um, he talks fondly of Bertha Walton, the African-American housekeeper mm-hmm. who uh, started working for the Cooper family when Cooper's parents were still alive. And then they died in the early 40s, and she stayed on living above the garage. Um, and she was still alive in 1978 mm-hmm. when I did my production. And Marion Travis, the biographer, had gotten to know her and asked her if she would talk to me, and uh, Bertha didn't choose to talk to me, which I really am sorry I wasn't able to do. And actually, only when I started this more recent research did I um, realize that she had died in 1985, just a few months after the second production Mm. that I did. I've actually visited her grave uh, which is in Oakwood Cemetery, not far, actually, from Madison Cooper's grave. Mm. Of course, his has this very elaborate, more than life-size angel on it. Uh, mm-hmm. Hers is a very simple uh, tombstone. Um, in the recent play I've been writing, I imagine her great-niece in the present day being interviewed about her her great-aunt mm. and... Uh, um, and so it was, it was moving to find the actual grave, um, and the, the obituary. And just recently I've been able to identify a great niece, a real great niece, not the fictional one that I had created who lives in Dallas that I'm hoping now to get in touch with. I only oh, learned wow. about this Monday. Okay. Um, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. So the, the research continues. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were telling me Sunday about, uh, uh, Mrs. Hudson's reaction to her, de- how she was depicted. <laughs> so once she read the uh, dirty book yeah. uh, and saw how she was depicted, how did she react to that? Well, uh, the character she is based on, um, or is who is based on her, Trina Starro Hayden, dies at the end of the first quarter of the novel. The novel's in two volumes, but each of the two volumes have books one and two and three and four. Mm-hmm. So she dies at the end of book uh, one. And she hadn't quite gotten to that yet. She said she was obviously you know, not long for this world. Um, so she didn't read the whole novel uh, yet. I assume she probably went on to read it. But um, um, <laughs> yeah, she had been a great beauty. Uh, she was the queen of the 1917 Cotton Palace. Um, and... Um, I had forgotten to tell her before she started reading. The first interview was conducted before she read the novel. I gave her a copy of it to read then. Mm-hmm. And then the second interview about a month later was um, after she had seen my production and read the okay. the first quarter of the novel. 
And I had forgotten to tell her that he divided up how a character looks and how a character acts and that she was the basis for the sweet uh, personality of the character and not her plain appearance. (laughs) And so when I... uh, met her the second time after she had been reading the novel, she immediately showed me a picture of herself as the queen of the 1917 Cotton Palace and said, see, I didn't look like a stalk of celery, as he described somebody saying about Trina Starway. And I had to sort of fall all over myself, apologizing for uh, not having been clearer. And and she had a good sense of humor after that. Um, but, um, uh, and I think she said... Uh, at first, Trina struck her as kind of bland and colorless, but mm-hmm. um, as that first part of the novel progressed, she said uh, she started to show uh, characteristics that she wouldn't mind being associated with. So <laughs> she was mollified. <laughs> um, you know, there's another interesting tangent that I alluded to when we met. Um, which was that, you know, there's a lot of sex in the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of about adolescent boys and their curiosity about sex and how they learn about sex and their first sexual experiences. And um, in reading the oral history interviews in the online, <clears throat> who was it? Yeah, I think it was um, Abner McCall's wife uh, mentioned... a a sex education class that Madison Cooper, who was a friend of hers, had um, paid for. And and all of a sudden I remembered, you know, I only read that comment um, in the last couple of years, but back when I was doing the research in 1978, I had talked to um, the... um, uh, director of the Armstrong Browning Library, Lois Murray Strain. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister was uh, a tour guide in the Browning Library at that time, and um, or had been, rather. And so she said to me, you know, Lois Murray Strain says she has things to say about Cooper. Why don't you talk to her? And in this conversation uh, with Mrs. Strain, who was also a Dr. Strain, she was a, an English professor at Baylor, um, she mentioned that Cooper, or it was her husband had told her that Cooper had the biggest pornography collection in Waco. And I remember being really startled to hear that sort of coming out of nowhere. But then the pieces all began to fit when I learned years later that he had paid for sex education classes at uh, Waco High School. And um, Lois Marie Strain taught the girls' half of okay. the sex education class. So that's why she, she knew about the pornography collection. Um, but that also, you know, again, this interest in sociology, this interest in philanthropy mm-hmm. and making Waco a better, more desirable place to live, which is the stated purpose of the Cooper Foundation, which he created in honor of his parents after they died. It's part of that um, uh, pattern of him studying human behavior and um, and wanting to improve the the world um, in this letter to Malcolm Cowley he said um, Saronia Texas is 
a truly honest book, and it is ultimately a study in tolerance and I hope compassion. Hmm. And you know, you you don't get that impression from all the publicity and the reviews uh, which talk about the length of the novel and the sort of melodramatic qualities of it, mm-hmm. that um, he did have a serious purpose mm-hmm. in the book. And he wanted, well, he was extremely ambitious, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he, I think he felt he was deserving of the Pulitzer Prize, you know, not just having written a best-selling novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, and that makes him more interesting to me, yeah. and kind of poignant, actually, that he um, he didn't quite achieve, you know, as much as he did achieve, he didn't quite get what he wanted, mm-hmm. and and that makes him a compelling dramatic character too. Um, so that's you know why I s- continue to be interested in <laughs> it. <laughs> well, it's been it's been a uh, a career long sort of uh, unpacking, I guess, of, of who he was. And as you said, thinking about it again as circumstances change and looking at him in the 1970s context and looking at him now and, yeah. and trying to understand who he was. Yeah. Actually, if we have time, uh, there's a, a little bit in a review by, um, the review by Granville Hicks in the yeah. New York Times that I found very illuminating. And I, when I went back and looked at it, it struck me as more significant than it had back in 1978. It goes back to this issue of the black characters in the novel are very stereotypical, as Jim Sorrell talked about. There's a character, Mammy Henderson, Mm -hmm. who seems straight out of Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, most of the important black characters are her grandchildren, children and grandchildren. And... um, and they become very complex and um, multifaceted characters, not just stereotypes. And uh, one of them ultimately is mm-hmm. who gets lynched. Uh, one of them, well, I want to—I don't want to give away too much of the novel, but uh, hey, you gave them plenty of time to read it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Granville Hicks addresses this issue mm. in his review. He says. Um, the black characters uh, seem very stereotypical. And then he says, repeatedly, Mr. Cooper seems to accept Southern prejudices Mm. only to set forth incidents or situations that expose the fallacies on which they rest. Mm. In other words, these characters become more complex than just the stereotypes Mm -hmm. that you first uh, assume they represent. And in the next paragraph, he says, it's just possible that Mr. Cooper's reticences and apparent inconsistencies are part of a deliberate strategy, but it seems more likely that they grow out of a conflict between the ideas he was brought up with and his deeper perceptions. If this is true, the great thing is that his perceptions haven't been censored. Mm. He has set down what he has seen and felt, whether it fitted his theories or not. And... I want to believe that he was more conscious of that than Granville Hicks seems to be willing to give him credit for. And that's sort of how I write him in my play. I try to be as close to the documentary record as possible, but I inevitably and over time have become more and more uh, willing to sort of take a leap of interpretation even. 
Mm-hmm. And so I try to, well, and that line in the letter to Malcolm Cowley about um, having a serious purpose and the book is ultimately a study in tolerance and I hope compassion, I think he means, you know, tolerance for racial differences and discrimination or, and uh, compassion for people who were discriminated against and what it, what it results in. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I, I'm hoping we can get your production, your latest production here in town. So we'll see if we can get to work, <laughs> get to work on that Great. and get you back to Waco. I, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time. I, I think we ought to end with, you mentioned a clip that you uh, thought you might want to share from your oral history interview that we began the conversation by talking about. If you don't mind introducing that clip and then we'll share it with listeners. Well, I just wanted uh, listeners to hear uh, Mrs. Hudson's voice mm-hmm. and uh, how charming she is. And um, I, I'll, I'll try to find one that, um, you know, gives you a little bit of her sense of humor. All right. We'll listen to that now. For instance, he, uh, his, uh, his grooming was all right. He was always just as clean and immaculate as could be. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, he didn't have any style. <laughs> and um, he just wasn't the kind of a person that the girls fought over mm-hmm. at all. He just, uh, <laughs> I, well, I really don't know how to describe it. But mm-hmm. so far as having a date with him, I wouldn't have been the least bit thrilled to have a date with him. <laughs> In fact, I don't know if I would have given him one. <laughs> because... Uh, just dull, boring, hmm. uh, but his mind was so superior to mine that I'm sure uh, I just couldn't appreciate what he what he had or what he had to offer. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess it comes out in this manuscript, this, this book that he's written. Well, I want to thank you so much, uh, John, for being with us today and, and sharing about your research. It, it I appreciate you reaching out. Uh, I think it was J- uh, Jim's podcast that that helped us can help you connect to him and him connect you to me. So thanks for sitting down with me today. And thank you for doing this series. It's fascinating. I really have loved being able to listen to these. Great. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been a Rogue Media Network production. Thank you.